It's recording. It's for sure recording. It is recording. This is Rob, and this is episode 45 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. But yeah, we release it every Sunday. Okay. Uh, and I was doing a bunch of research, like, which day is best? There's yeah. got to be one day that's, like, the day to launch it. And the overwhelming feedback on podcasting is, like, it's more about that you're consistent mm-hmm. than if it's, like, a certain day. And so yeah. as long as you're, like, consistently releasing on a weekly basis, your listeners will kind of key into what day you're launching. Yeah. And also I feel like I'm talking to you and your podcast is definitely bigger than mine at this point. No. <laughs> I guarantee it. Yeah. No way, dude. Yeah. You have... What, 45 of them? Well, yeah, the episodes are more, but okay, I'm sitting here with Chef Yiveng. Uh, here, let's go through the laundry list here. Owner of Union Monk <laughs> Kitchen. Uh, you may have seen him on Bon Appetit Magazine, yeah. named Best Chef by Minneapolis St. Paul Magazine. He is opening uh. the Nye in spring, at, in the spring, and already there's a ton of excitement behind it. And he is also uh, one of the hosts of the White on Rice podcast. And that's what we were talking about. That's what we were talking yeah. about. Uh, yeah, and this will be like the last third person thing I'm doing here. Yeah, uh, yeah is famous for his Hmong food. Which, for I was going to say for those of you who tuned in, but this is our second recording of this episode. <laughs> Last week we had this absolutely amazing conversation. The entire time my jaw was just on the floor, and I'm like, "This is absolutely his, your story, the the food." So much I, pressure now, bro. There's no pressure. Uh, now so pressure. No, the pressure was the first one. Now it's like, uh, th- th- but I got to the end of the recording. I hit the record button and looked down, and the mixer said no memory card and so after an hour and a half there's no memory card but this is how i know you're a super awesome dude is like right away you're like ah it's no problem and i'm sitting here just like it's a heart in my stomach like no and it's a weird mix of emotions because i had an amazing time so personally it it, but i hate wasting people's time but you're like no i didn't waste my time but then the last thing i was like oh my gosh people needed to hear that so i'm i'm really glad you're pressure now though to be like (laughs) oh how do you create something so organic and natural? This, this, this just turns into a terrible episode. Yeah. We'll just be as pretentious um, as possible. Yeah. I'll just do a lot of ums, um. Where you close the eyes and talk, yeah. actually? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, it was fun. I, mean, I get it, dude. Like, man, everybody, you know, messes up. Stuff like that happens all the time. I mean, in the cooking world, stuff like that happens all the time. You got to have to figure out. You know, it's, it's super, like, here's, here's a really kind of silly story. We um, we we made these pickles, right? But then when we went to this offsite catering for this like really wealthy dude, um, we like didn't we didn't have any, you know, we we forgot to bring them, you know. And I'm like, oh frick, like we forgot these pickles or whatever, you know, whatever. And they're nothing special; they're just pickles. So I'm like, shoot, what do we do? We, we but we still had cucumbers, so I'm like, okay, slice up the cucumber, throw in some Korean uh, Korean chili flakes in there. Um, let's make like basically it's like a crick quick brine so it's like honey a little bit of vinegar and some fish sauce and salt um and we i'm we're like oh crap we got to figure out a name for these so i'm like oh let's just call it in a sweet uh sweet and spicy pickles or sweet and spicy cucumbers or something like that tossed it up whatever you know and so we just totally just like ugh, just winged it and uh, at the end i mean like we spent hours on like we we roasted a suckling pig we did all these things right we spent hours on all these things and all the uh, guests could talk about was these cucumbers or these pickles or whatever. 
I'm like, are you kidding me? I spent eight hours on that suckling pig. And all you talked about is like, the, oh, man, that cucumber stuff. That was amazing. <laughs> what is it? Like, what's the recipe? And I'm like, I don't know. Whatever we had when we – because this was off It was out in Guaxeta. So we're like, I don't know. Whatever we had in the truck that we brought, <laughs> you know? It's like you have to be known for these, right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, no, but what about the pig? Oh, yeah, pig was good. But, you know, you know. So I, I understand, man. Like things like that happen well, all the time. It's interesting when you create something that is just, it's different than what people have had. So suckling pig is like maybe someone's had something similar, but yeah. with cucumbers like that, they're just used to pickles. And so when something's as different as that, it's, it shouldn't be the case. Well, <laughs> then we changed everything over to those. <laughs> we did. We're like, okay, no more pickling. We can just like do this on site. We just cut all this stuff up. We can toss it. Like, you know, if you toss it like 15 minutes, if you toss all this stuff 15 minutes before, like just because of like you know the acid and the salt and the sugar that you put in there it you know it basically quick brines it real quick oh with a rich fatty pig that's got to be yeah. an awesome pairing too well it's so funny then we're just like oh i guess we're sticking with this you know <laughs> like this is kind of our thing now and so everyone always like what's the recipe and i'm like i don't know it's like four ingredients you know so so you got this amazing new thing that you serve with all your sides. And what I got is I learned that this mixer still has a timer that goes even if there's not a memory card. So I, oh. <laughs> at least I learned there. The light is red here. The timer is going. I'm still like mm, 20% paranoid, but I'm feeling yeah. pretty confident that we're actually recording right now. No, Yeah, good. Hopefully we'll figure this out. Yeah. So let's go back to yeah. what got you into food because that is, I think, when we last talked was everything kind of revolved food was a part of the picture but it really was revolving around your upbringing and the Hmong culture and like mm -hmm. what that means and how it reflects into the food and what led to the journey of starting union yeah so um i got into food um you know like i think that everybody would love that story like young age like i was like you know standing on the on the ledge and you know you're trying you're cooking with your mom or your dad or whatever your grandma um, that's really not how I got into food. Um, food was always just been a part of our family, our culture. Um, everything surrounded like food is kind of the epicenter for celebration. It's the epicenter for gatherings, um, even just dinner at home. Like we don't like even growing up and this is true for our family, even growing up, like eating dinner wasn't like, Hey, everyone fun for yourself. Like mom made some stuff and you quote unquote make a plate or something like it wasn't that it was it was this very um, systematic ritual where you know when dad comes home from work my mom had dinner ready and we all sit down and eat together and you know and so there was this actual like you stop time you stop what you're doing you come in and you eat dinner and it wasn't like oh we did this three nights a week it's every night that's what you know it was like breakfast we kind of did our own because everyone went to, one went to school dad was at work mom went to work you know lunch or whatever you know but then dinner was really symbolic of like stopping everything and eating together and it was very it was a it was a big part of our culture and growing up well in growing up it was like if the rule was if you did if you cook you don't have to do dishes and i hated doing dishes you know i just i, I love it do i love doing dishes now you know, because it's it's such a nice, it's just like putsy things to do with your hands <laughs> so you can like zone out and think. Now, but before it was like, you're a kid, you're like, the moment you're done eating, you want to run back outside, right? And so I ended up, <clears throat> I ended up, um, you know, just hopping in the kitchen and helping my mom or, you know, at one point in our lives, my mom was working second shift 
and my dad was working first, and then my dad would come home, and he uh, he loved watching the news, even though he didn't understand English that well. My brother would sit by him, and my brother would help translate the news because he just kind of my dad loved kind of current events. And then while that was happening, he would kind of like tell me what to do in the kitchen. And so here I was trying to just to figure out like, oh, how do I cut this, and how do you know what what, what do I, how do I cook with this? And it's interesting because. Uh, I watch some kids around the kitchen. I'm always like, oh, careful, hot, oh, careful, you know, sharp knife. But I'm like, oh, yeah, I was like 10 or 12. I was doing the same thing, you know. <laughs> that didn't really, you know, he cared, but he was just like, okay, be careful, just kind of do your thing. And so, so yeah, so so that's kind of how I got in. And then uh, just culturally, we we just don't, you know, like when, when friends go, oh, yeah, like I'm buying half a steer or whatever. It's like, oh, that's cute, or half, or, or quarter of a cow or whatever. You're like, what what happens to the other three fours? You know, <laughs> so we grew up just like every month, every like either every three weeks ish. You know, we would be at some uh, Amish farm or some kind of farm where they're like, "Hey, you know, here's chicken, here's pig, you know, here's cow. Like, go at it." You know, and then we just buy it right there. Like, like I call it super wholesale. You know, like <laughs> it's really like it's like you know how when you pick your lobsters, yeah, <laughs> and when you go to the store, that's what you do. You literally go in and you. You see, you know, you see the herd or you see the group and you kind of just like, yeah, that's the one. Are farmers chill with that? Could you just go to a farm and be like, oh, I just, I want a cow? <laughs> yeah, some farmers are. Um, and, and it's it's a relationship that's been built for a while. That was, I saw an article recently, actually, that was pretty <clears throat> funny uh, that one, uh, one of my other friends who's a chef posted yeah. that was like, COVID-19 making people realize they can go straight to the farm to get their food. And I'm like, that, but that's where the food's been coming from this entire time. Why is it's, absolutely it's, there's the connection of food has is insane that yeah. it's so like new and novel yeah. that you could go to a farm to get your food. And yet farm to table is popular and yeah. yet farmers markets are popular, yeah. but people would never think of going to a farm. Yeah. So, so for some people it's like a Saturday, let's go to the farmer's market, blah, blah, blah. For, for other people, that's just another Saturday, you know, or yeah. this is just every day. You know, this isn't like a special thing. We wake up at 10 a.m. to go farmer's market with our coffee and our scones. It's, no, nah, it's, we, we got to go do that. And, and it's not it's not that these pe- other people go to the farmer's market. They go to, like, their backyard and just harvest, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so I grew up easily around, you know, like butchery, around, you know, uh, you know, just around animals, you know, and blood, cutting knife you know as as a yeah, as a kid like most kids was learning how to like throw a spiral or throw like a, you know a curveball or <laughs> throw a fast pitch or whatever swinging a bad i was you know my dad gave me a boning knife you know cut he would trim these you know he would help they would break down um these you know animals into into primals and then as the kids we would kind of gather around and we start kind of you know cutting the chunks out and stuff like that so i was very comfortable holding a knife or how you know by the time, like holding a knife, like boning, cutting things, by the time I was like 12, you know, so it was like really comfortable for me. Were your parents in the food industry or were no, they? No, we're just monk people, babe, bro. <laughs> <clears throat> That's just what we do, man. Uh, there, there, I think that there is this mentality with, with monk people, especially the monk people that have come through, um, through the war, uh, come from Laos, been through some really, really hard stuff that they, there's just this culturally there's just this idea of uh, preserving and um kind of packing away so instead of going like hey if we're gonna like my my my, my mom and dad are always like if we're gonna spend like we're gonna wake up at six in the morning on a saturday to go out to a farm to do all this stuff instead of killing one pig why don't we just kill two just you know instead of killing like, like one 
Like my dad's hilarious. Like I, and he still does it today. Like he, there's these Amish farmers that he's become good friends with in Wisconsin when they were still living in Wisconsin. So when, when he goes back, he'll dr- literally drive past their farm and just say hi to them and goes, you guys got anything you guys want to get rid of? And they'll be, yeah, uh, you know, these three over here, we're kind of, you know, thinking about uh, getting rid of, you know, or not getting rid of, but you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah. you know, like processing them. My dad's like, I'll take them. And like, just on a random weekend, <laughs> you know, my mom was sending us pictures. Oh, your dad decided to kill two, you know, 155 pound pigs, you know? And yeah. so when you get these two pigs, what's yeah. the next? Is he taking them live or is he? Well, yeah, the, the you can he could do it himself, but yeah. or the or the or the farmers can just you know like just shoot them. And at that know? at that point, what what are the next steps? Because this just is break so- it down, just break it down, dude. It's so interesting because growing up, I just thought this was like a normal Saturday that every kid does. Like you know, in like growing up, yeah, uh, in in uh, middle school, high school. Which is like, hey, what did you do for your weekend? And my friends are like, oh yeah, we went camping, we went to my cabin, we did this, and I was like. We killed a pig, and everybody would think I'm like making a joke, and they would laugh at me. They're like, "Ah, oh, like he's so funny." And I'm like, "Yeah, we killed the pig." They're like, oh, "Okay, haha, ha, we've heard that joke before." And I'm like, "I don't understand why these people don't understand." You know, so yeah, so it's so funny that that is considered not normal when there's the, the, this disconnect that people will eat meat, but be like, "I don't want to see it," and if you show it to me, I will be mad at you. You know, I, I met a girl in college who didn't realize what a whole chicken looked like. So I remember I was a fresh, or freshman sophomore in college. I was at a friend's house and they're like, hey, and it was almost like a joke. Like, ha ha, we bought a whole chicken. And everyone's like laughing. I'm like, yeah, that's what you do, right? Okay. And everyone's just food. like, yeah, well, everyone <laughs> thought it was hilarious that they bought a whole chicken. They're like, I don't know what you'll do with that. I'm like, I think I can figure something out. I'm like, okay. And this is before everyone kind of knew that I cooked and crap. Mm-hmm. So I like, you know, deboned it, you know, like broke it down. And I remember this girl was like, oh my gosh. How do you know how to do that? I'm like, how do you not know how to do this? And then on the other thing, the other thing I thought, she was like, I never knew that like chicken breasts came from, you know, where they came from. Yeah. Because she's like, we always just get it and it's like this really nice white meat that's like a chunk right there, you know. I was like, yeah, here's the chicken breast, here's the thighs, here's the drummies. And she's just like blown away by chicken anatomy. And even, even like what's interesting is like, I, like, this is like the silliest thing, but like. Like when we do whole fish, right? We've had people who say, hey, can you take the head off um, when you guys do your whole fish? Can you just cut the head off? And I'm like, okay, sure. Like, it's just weird that an animal's looking at me while I'm eating it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. You know, I I, I I have a strong theory. This is because of Disney. I think. Yeah, well, yeah, Disney did ruin a lot of things I for think us. Growing up and watching Bambi and seeing all the animal friends. Yeah, there's just Finding this, Nemo. There's yeah. this emotional connection it, where you think is. that bears are these fun people in yeah. the woods when in reality they'll rip your face off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I. Growing up, it, it was. This is what we did. You know, if it was like plucking chickens, you know, like. And then if you go to any Hmong house, and, and this is in bias races whatever it's not that it's true you go to any Hmong house a lot of them will have deep freezers like two or three of them and it's just like freezing things away so it's like if they have a big harvest from the garden like they'll you know uh, blanch a bunch of the string beans and then put them in ziplocs and freeze them and then they'll just pull them out you know so it's it's just it's storage so like Hmong like the OG Hmong uh you know, people like, like the older, like my, my mom and dad's generation, and even a little bit older, a little bit younger after that, they, when they buy homes, they always look, f- it's, it's not about, oh, how beautiful the dining room is, how, you know, oh, it's not like the bathroom where it's like, oh, do we have like, you know, a screen in porch, blah, 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 blah. It's 
how big is the garage and how many deep freezers can we keep put in there? Because if you want, I tell people, if you want to sell homes to Hmong people, right now a lot of them buy three car garage, and they they might only have two cars. They buy three car garage because the other side is just is just deep freezers, and and it comes from this culture and this mentality of we didn't have much, and now we're in this we're in America where there is prosperity, and we want to be able to like never go hungry again. Yeah, and 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 that's so enriched in our culture. So, so when you're 12 years old and you're starting to get these knife skills and become really comfortable yeah. in the kitchen, where where are you at? Where are you living? And how, like, is that where you grew up? Or yeah. what was? So uh, I spent my elementary years. We spent our elementary years in the West Coast, uh, Pennsylvania. We lived in Lancaster County, which is like right with our, our neighbors are Amish Mennonite. And you know, it's so interesting. I tell people that growing up there, it was oh yeah, like our neighbor would bring over bread for us all the time because that's what they would make every day. This wasn't a fad. You know, like it wasn't it wasn't the hipster kinfolk life or whatever. Like we're gonna like play a scene like we're a little house on the prairie, but really like we love our iPhones kind of deal. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. This wasn't a fad. This wasn't a trend. They wasn't trying to get some likes on Instagram. This is what they did. You know, our our, our one of our neighbors was a dairy farmer, and so they literally that's where I learned how to drink uh, like basically milk from the udder. You know, and it's like. It's like drinking whole cream, and then like when you have like you know regular milk, you're just like drinking white water, you know. Uh, and it had that grassy, earthy taste to it too, you know. I grew up drinking skim, and when you have a cup of real milk, you're like, this is a different thing. Yeah, yeah. You're like, why is my whole mouth feel like it's coated, you know? Uh, yeah, and so we dad, and then we just we had farm lands that we just farm and stuff. And when I say farm, it's not like went to farmer's market. It was like for us. Yeah. And it's there, there's this ideology in, in Hmong culture where you do something, you, you actually do something not just enough for you, but you always do something um, enough for you and maybe a few other families because it's that idea that we want to be able to provide not just for ourselves, but over abundantly. And uh, it's, it's really cool because I, I see that in the philosophy of my mom and dad. That like when they make dinner, they don't just go, oh, just us two? Okay, so it's going to be eight ounces of meat we're using, blah, 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 blah. It's they purposely make it so there's a lot left over because you never know when a person stop by the door then you can offer them food. That's a beautiful philosophy because if everybody in a neighborhood thinks this way, everybody's always exactly. going to be taken care of. Exactly. But that's really just not the yeah. way things are anymore. That's more like... Even if you're in an apartment building, it's mm-hmm. like I don't want to know my neighbors. Yeah, I, I don't want them to know who I am. I don't want to know who they are. And mm-hmm. it's it, and you only come to know your neighbor when there's a loud clashing noise, or there's a weird smell. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's, it's like you only come out when there's like when it's more about curiosity and not about hospitality. Or it's, 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 yeah, it's usually anger first. That yep. the only time I'm going to bring you're it so up. So loud. If you're yeah. inconveniencing me, that's when I'm going to bring it up where it's like, oh, if you had met them first and learned they're a musician and this is their livelihood, yep. then, oh, you'd be way yeah. more understanding if it's loud during this time and you can figure it out. And definitely. That, that's something I struggle with because I, I definitely tend to be the person that when I move into a place, it's like, all right, this is my place. Yeah. And ironically, where I live now, uh, it wasn't until COVID happened that mm. my neighbor knocked on my door. It was just like, hey, things are really weird. We're all in the back like area. Do you want to hang out? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Actually, that sounds really nice. <laughs> I haven't talked sure? to you. are like the third person I've seen in the last three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> you're like the second human contact I've had. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how'd, you, how'd you end up in Pennsylvania of all places? Uh, so my, my parents, when we moved to America, so we so – we, we're in the refugee camp. My parents were in, they met in there in 77, 78, they got married. 
we left in 88. So they, they were there for like 10 years, a little bit over 10 years. I was born in 84. Um, my oldest brother was born in 81. So we were there for a little bit. Uh, and then we moved to, uh, we, we came to America and through immigration and everything and refugee status, we ended up in St. Paul, moved out to Manitowoc a little bit, my dad's side. And then eventually I think my parents just wanted to get us out of kind of like the, um, I don't know. I don't want to call it inner city, but it was more like the rougher life. You know, um, I think a lot around that time in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, there was a lot of Hmong refugees that came in and what happens when you have all this big immigrant group that comes in is, uh, for housing sake, everyone just like, you know, the government or, you know, social programs would just kind of put them all in one place. When we have a bunch of especially young men that are unrest and they're in a spot where they feel discriminated, they feel all this stuff starts building up and then that's how gangs start. That's how, you know, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's just the reality and the fact of life. Like even, even like, you know, and so the Twin Cities had some of the most dangerous high pop in the late eighties, early nineties, mid nineties there had some of the highest, um, uh, like hardcore, like Hmong um, gangs in the you know in the city, especially like you know in St. Paul East Side area there and stuff. And my dad just wanted to get us away from that. And so there's a small, tiny Hmong group out in you know out in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour 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 ten west of Philly. So it's like it's weird because it's like Philly is like almost an hour and a half away and sometimes it was considered like the suburbs of Philly. It's yeah. like, hour and a half? That's not a suburb. You know, it's like <laughs> here to Duluth. Like, oh, it's, Duluth is a suburb of, you know, the Twin Cities. Uh, so we we moved out there. Uh, man, I spent my summers running around uh, fields, playing alfalfa fields, hiding out in cornfields, turning into our forts and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and then, uh, and then we just... Uh, you know, eighth grade, we moved back to uh, Wisconsin, central Wisconsin area. So, so moving away from the refugee camp at four, do you have mm-hmm. any memories of that? Or is that something that... Is yeah, I have. Early? Like, it's like it's like memories in a way of... Um, you're not sure if it's a dream or not. You're like, is that really a dream? You know what I'm saying? Like all, all memories, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, one of my most distinct memory is when we were when we were in the plane... I didn't understand the concept of like a plane, right? Yeah. I was like four or five. And we were on the plane and my mom's like, we're going to America. And I'm like, oh, what? Okay. And I remember I sat down in this chair and they put this nice, like this nice lady with a uniform came in, like, help me put this like seatbelt on. And I'm like, oh. And I thought I was going on this like amusement park ride type thing. And like it got, like, I remember everything was like shaky. Like, you know, I mean, you're like a, figure airplane like think, yeah. think of a four or five year old trying to figure out like the concept of an airplane and then i remember she came up and like gave me this red can and she's like oh this you know like and my mom and dad are like oh you drink that and i'm like what and i opened this red can obviously it was coke right? yeah it's a commercial for coke <laughs> uh, and, and i i really i felt this like a beautiful uh, script yeah, of the yeah. commercial like just like from the refugee camp to uh America freedom. <laughs> and I remember I opened it and I drank it and I've never tasted anything that sweet, that sweet nectar once it like hit your lips and you're just, you know, and all that, like, 
you know, that, you know, high Sweet fructose corn, corn syrup. syrup yeah, and it hits and that fizz, it burned, but it burned so good and it was like going <laughs> down. And I was like, if this is what America tastes like, I want it. Um, you know, um, yeah, and it was, I remember I was like, what is this thing? And, you know, my mom's like, oh, it's, you know, like soda or, you know, whatever. And I'm like, this thing's so great. And I just like savored it. And I remember I like fell asleep. And then we walked out these big iron doors. And I remember my mom saying to me, hey, we're in America. And I'm like, wow, America, going to America is not that hard. You sit on a chair and they give you this really sweet drink that's fizzy to drink. And then like you walk out in another really big area and then you're in America. And so, yeah, and I was just kind of putting two and two together. I, I remember going through uh, registration, you know, um, having my immune, sh- uh, uh, my all my like vaccines and stuff, mm. shots. And I was like, why are they poking us? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I remember. I still remember bits and pieces of that. Yeah, I would say so. And you're, so you said your parents <clears throat> met in the refugee camp. Yeah. And they were there for 10 years. Yeah. So they had, my dad had, I, I, and I just recently found this out. My dad had an opportunity to leave. Um, the refugee camp and he was actually uh, my mom was just pregnant with me with me and then I had my older brother and there's just a, you know just them my older brother Peter and then uh, you know I was my mom I was doing my mom's belly but there's like a picture and I'm like oh look like wait and I was confused because it was a registration picture and I'm like why what's going on here and, I'm like, and my mom was like yeah your dad you know we were actually going to leave early we we're going to leave in like 83 or something like that but your father uh, didn't want to leave and so I'm like, oh, I could have been born in America. It's like oh, so close. No, so, but uh, yeah. So I just found that out, like you know. And my dad uh, fought in the war, you know. Um, you know, the, and, and when I say the war, a lot of people kind of look at me funny. I'm like, uh, and especially my white friends, and I'm like, we were on your side, dude. We were on your <laughs> side. <laughs> it's like they're like, oh, I have an uncle from who went to Nam. I'm like, we were on your side, bro. It's where it's just weather, weather huh? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of cold out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but one, well, I mean, one of the really crazy things is you know my dad was like 12 13 cia and then american government um cia came in with you know the government and they said they uh basically said to the Hmong people hey they met with their leaders and said hey we we want you guys to fight for us and win lose or draw you'll have free citizenship to america every every man who fights their family will can go to america and so here are these hill people that live in the hills of laos and the mountains of laos and this offer is great. And by the way, we'll, per month, we'll pay you like, you know, 75 bucks a your month. your dad was 12 or 13? 12, yeah. All his brothers, all his brothers, um, they they opt up, you know. And so all his younger brothers didn't, but him and some of his old brothers, they went and they fought. And it was, you know, the the Hmong people were already disenfranchised people that were considered, you know, we were the mountain people. Uh, you know, um, the word is Hmong um, Pachoa, which literally means uh, the, the hill tribe people or the, you know, so that's why the, the word hill tribe to us uh, means something. That's why we named our parent company Hill Tribe LLC. Oh, that's so, so cool. That's, yeah. yeah um, you, you'll see that word a lot, you know, with like Hmong products, Hill Tribe, Hill Tribe. Um, but it's just this idea of what the reason why a lot of the Hmong people lived in the hills was because they were forbidden to live in the lowlands where it was fertile because they were considered like second class citizens. So the Hmong people lived in the hills, and uh, living in the hills, in the mountains, they learned how to farm, they learned how to do irrigation, they learned how to do all these things, and they kept still going. And that's what I love, like, I love telling young Hmong kids, I'm like, man, our grandparents, our parents, our grandparents, wasn't given any opportunity. We, they weren't supposed to make it. They were given the crappiest farming land, but we still found a way. Like, 
you know what I'm saying like we st- they still found a way yeah. and and I I love telling young monk kids like that that blood that pumped through their veins and pumped through their hearts is the same blood that pumps in your vein in your heart so you are without excuse so then when you, you you know to the young monk kids it's like if you feel unmotivated get to know their story because that's going to motivate you because when you realize the sacrifices you realize what they did so that they can not for their freedom, you know, but for your freedom, it changes you. And I, I tell people, my dad, um, I didn't find out this till later in life. I was, you know, probably a couple of years ago. And my dad was, he was a huge hero in the war. Um, you know, in, a, in our culture, what happens is when, especially when you're a kid, especially you're a boy, if, you, if, there are these, if there are like parties and gatherings, uh, any of the older gentlemen can stop you and say, hey, son, what's your name? And what you do is you tell them your name and you, you tell them who your dad is and who his dad is, you know, kind of joking saying it's almost like uh, game of Thrones style, you know, like <laughs> son, you know, like Rathia, son of blah, 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 son of blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, we just do that and just not as exciting, uh, but we do that. And I remember when I was you know, a kid running around and, you know, this group of um, monk, there were this party and it was in the living room. And I, well, I think me and a bunch of kids like running through the living room. And I was always a bigger kid, so I always mm. stood out. And then all the monk kids, all the other monk kids, and I remember this gentleman stopped me and said, "Hey, son, what's your name?" And I'm like, "Oh, I'm yeah." And you know, I told my dad's name and my dad's dad's name, and the room got quiet. And he looked at me and he said, "You know, son, uh, your dad saved my life in the war, and a lot of us men wouldn't be here if it wasn't for what he did." And I'm like, oh, "Okay, cool. Can I go play now?" You know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're a stupid kid, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. um I remember, I remember that, and I still remember today. Like when we go to parties, or if there's gatherings and big parties, like men will surround him and listen to his stories. And um, yeah, and and I realize what really triggered inside of me is when I was a kid, I was always very embarrassed of my mom and dad, and it's, you know, and and just the fact that they couldn't speak English, you know, especially when you had a career day. It's like I remember one this career day, this kid his. His dad was a um, airline pilot, mm-hmm. and he brought in his like headset and his mask, and, you know, and you know his guy, big old like air, air mask, and, and 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 he you know came in and told everyone and all the especially like all the boys were like, "What the heck? This is so awesome!" Or you know, or my buddy, one of, one of my friends growing up, his dad was a fireman, so he brought in the whole getup, you know, brought in the truck. And, mm-hmm. And I always felt embarrassed because they're like, well, what does your dad do? And I'm like, I don't know. I think, he, you know, he was a carpenter at the time. Mm-hmm. He built um, kitchen cabinets. And I said, no, he works. You know, he just builds kitchens, you know, but he couldn't speak English. So I was always, I felt a little embarrassed, you know, when friends were like, hey, we, you know, like, well, can we come over to your house? I'm like, no, you know, because I just didn't want them to see that. Or, you know, I mean, it's not like these kids are mean, but it's just they don't understand. Well, how come your parents don't speak English, you know? Yeah. Um, even in uh, until college, I think. I talked to some of my friends and they're like, wait, your parents don't speak English. Like, how do they get around? I'm like, I used to be so embarrassed with that question. Like, how do they get around? But I, but now I wear that as a, as a badge of honor. I'm like, yeah, you sh- that's, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's amazing how they can still get around without speaking English. Well, it goes back to the farming in the mountains that yeah. you, you make with what you have exactly. and, you, and you're still able to make it work. And the, yeah. that does seem to be a distinctly American feature is like, if you don't speak English, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Whereas the way I look at it is it's amazing how many places in the world where they speak multiple languages. Yeah. And then the U S is like, no, you speak it, American. 
Yeah, American is the language. You all need to learn it, yeah. even though we're a country of 300 million in yeah. a world of seven plus billion. Yeah, and even even a lot around the country, it's like everybody kind of knows a little bit of English. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like, because they're always, because I think that there's a standard as if you know English, or wherever you are, like, you know, you could be in the Congo or whatever, like they'll know a little bit of English because they know that if Americans come through, like, we can communicate with them. So there's like this standard and I totally yeah. get where you're coming from, yeah, yeah. but I also know that there's a standard for English where it's like, you know, while people are saying, I, I believe that English is almost this kind of universal language where yeah. everybody kind of knows a little bit of it. Uh, just so that if we ever, you know, we can just use that to, to communicate with each other. But one of the things that I really, um, uh, realized you know, as, as growing up, you know, with my parents is there's just a lot of shame where it's like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't want to like, try to explain to all my friends like who I am where I'm from and so that led to like in college just this kind of running from who I was hmm. so um you know one of the things that I, I really learned is uh where a lot of friends would say to me is like man you're so American like I did sometimes I forget that you're a monk right especially in college a lot of friends said that to me and in part what I never got a chance to say to them and what I really wanted to say was bro you don't have to you don't understand like I had to adapt like yeah. I had to adapt to your ways because nobody was going to, nobody was, nobody was going to try to understand like Hmong culture from, you know what I'm saying? Like, like my buddies in college, my white friends in college wasn't going to understand Hmong culture unless I, you know, unless it was like my Hmong friends. So it's like, I had to adapt. So like growing up, like I had to adapt. So, um, I, you know, I, as a kid, I was always afraid of being made fun of and laugh, you know? So I, to, to adapt to that, I, uh, I, became like i try to get like witty you know like like have fast comebacks yeah if i can make people laugh then they won't laugh you know at me they'll laugh with me kind of mentality and um i think that that really pushed me like in the survival mode of like you have to adapt you have to talk like them you have to engage in what they're engaging in like i literally watched seinfeld <clears throat> excuse me i grew up watching i force myself to watch Seinfeld so that I have context to talk to because like all my buddies watch Seinfeld, you know, um, like I got into movies cause everybody would talk about movies cause I had to know the context. And when did it begin to shift for you? Because it's somewhat surprising to hear from chef Yi of Vang, literally like the, one of the most notable Hmong chefs <laughs> in Minnesota yeah. for sure, but even on a national level, yeah, thank it's, you, man. It's, it's surprising to hear this. You would assume someone like yourself has just always been in the front saying, this is Hmong no. culture. Yeah. When did that shift from feeling you needed to hide it or that it was a, a point of shame to now being where you are? Yeah. So for me, the shift came um, after I did a bunch of cooking stint at all these different restaurants and like, you know, Italian restaurants, like barbecue, smoke pit restaurants, um, French restaurants, you know, like classic Americana restaurants, which is super funny too, because right now, like, like I'll, I'll make burgers or even like meatballs and people are like, well, you know how to do that? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, you know, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like I, I grew up in the restaurant world, dude. Like, that's that's not your brand. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like there's this idea where it's like, oh, you can only cook your brand. If it's not rice, yeah. if it's not some kind of noodles. I'm like, yeah, I get it, man. I get it. Um, so I, one, of, one of the things that I really, like, push hard 
on was uh, t- to learn all these skills, different things. Because I never wanted to do quote unquote Asian food because I'm like, Ugh, that's the stereotype. So anyways, I, I worked at all these restaurants. They're great. But I would always feel there was a sense of something missing. And then uh, what would really drive me was when I went back to my mom's, um, when I would go back to my mom's table and eat her and eat her food. And it was just simple food, man. And simple Hmong food. And there was, there would be this like, there's like, like revival in my soul. And I felt awoken, awaken. I woke, I woken up. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> English is my second language, bro. So, uh, uh all so, the above. Yeah. All the above. I've woken into up, but I did. Uh, <laughs> but it eventually what happened there was, um, I, you know, the philosophy for Union Hmong Kitchen was, um, at that time we were just called ourselves Union Kitchen because I didn't even want people to know that we were Hmong. Because I was afraid that if we were going to be Hmong, nobody would come up. So, so just even got, in starting oh, a Hmong restaurant, yeah. even in starting a Hmong restaurant, you're, we didn't you're even like, call it a Hmong restaurant. We just called it a restaurant. So it's kind of like, it's almost still like we kind of have to not yeah. let people even know what's up and have them taste yeah. it first before we can really. Because yeah. I think that he, I mean I see this today too. Like exactly, I think it fits today's what's happening going on today is people don't want to get to know people. They label them first, so that when they come in. They feel like they have control of the situation, right? So, like for example, like you and I, we just meet. First of all, I'm going to be like, and and I, I, you know, I'm going to be like, oh, who does he vote for? Mm-hmm. Oh, what side of the right or left is he at? What's his ideology, religion wise? Where where is he? You know, uh, socioeconomic wise. And I think that a lot of times, I think the research and graph that stuff's good, but we get so into that that you forget that there's a human soul on the other end. And then that, that, and then in that human soul, there are experiences that happen to them, so that it brings them to make some of the decisions and choices that they make. And it's hard to do that when you meet something someone for five seconds, and right away you look at them and you're like, okay, so he's got this like Trump 2020 thing sticker on, so oh, he's probably racist, blah 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 blah, you know. And, and again, I'm you're not referring to me right now. Yeah, by no, the way. no, no, so no, I'm not. <laughs> I just, I'm not. I just want to make that but clear. But you know what I'm saying? For example, no, no, I know exactly like, what you're saying. You know, and, and and again, like. I'm apolitical, man. No, like I, I'm I, apolitical. I I'm, and so when when I see that right now, or like, hey, you know, he has a Biden sticker. Oh, he's blah 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 blah. Or he must believe these twenty things, yep, and it has to yep, be that way. Yeah, and, it's, and it's like binary processing exactly. of things that are not binary. And because I think people are afraid to get to know people. Yeah. Because let me tell you, like, if you got to know this person and you loved hanging out with them and you just thought they were the greatest, but then later on you found out that oh, they vote this certain way. Does it still change the fact that you had this really great connection with this person? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Or do yeah. you go back and discriminate and throw that all away and be like, Bleh, whatever, you know, like, oh no, he's a horrible person because there's a certain group of people on whatever side that are the loud voices, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That are saying these things, that are doing these things, but they don't represent the whole group. It's the overload of information especially everybody that's on every social media, Mm -hmm. the overload of information you get, it's almost become a necessity as especially a younger person in order to process information, you have to create these hyper efficient systems, but the, it got past the point of being real. And so people are now starting to brand themselves a certain way. It's either your right or your left, your blue or your red. And to me, it's like, Honestly, at this point, I think, and maybe I shouldn't say this, but at this point, if you ask most people, do mm. you think these are 
the best people mm-hmm. to run this country? Most people would probably say no, but I have to pick one. Yep. It's like, oh, no. So the system that's in place, yep. it's, it's making us have to be mm-hmm. binary, choose one or two, mm-hmm. and then you have to align with every single thing. Mm-hmm. And I struggle with this personally that mm-hmm. I'm all over the board yeah. about stuff. I'm, yep. I'm very apolitical myself yep. because of that. That yep. It's like the system itself is not right. But unfortunately, it's like obviously that's the most divisive thing. But what you're saying is totally true that when you meet someone – it's almost like a, an arrogance thing that you're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm really good with people. I know what they're all about, yeah. even though I have, have just met them. But yeah. something I read that has really impacted the way I think about it, and it's uh, led me to really try to get to know someone before judging what they're about is that generally what you see in someone is mm-hmm. a reflection of something that's happened to you. Yep. So if I look at someone and immediately make judgments mm-hmm. – there are these subconscious things going mm-hmm. on that if you're not recognizing those are happening, mm-hmm. that you look at them, you go, they're like that. I'm not going to think any otherwise. Yeah. When in reality, that's your reflection of who they mm-hmm. are. Yeah. And then you try everything they do mm-hmm. to fit that. And yeah. it's like, it, unfortunately, it's almost like that's how it started. And then social media came along. And now yep. people feel like they should fit how yep. they look. Mm-hmm. And you see people changing how, how they dress or what they I mean, you literally just said it people going to farmers markets and Mm -hmm. trying to do farm stuff for Instagram likes. Yeah. And I have had that thought is how many things are popular that people are doing that they don't like doing it Yeah, just because it's like really photographic. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. I think that because of social media and because of platforms like Instagram, Facebook, whatever, all the kids are using these days, TikTok, whatever, because of that, Everybody is their own PR manager. And it's about public relations. Literally, that's what it is. It's how do I create myself to look a certain way that people think a certain way about me? So everyone, like everyone thinks that they're their own PR uh, group or whatever, you know, you know, manager. Yeah. And so that's why the sun has to be perfect as I put my hands on my hips and my cup <laughs> in this hand. And, oh, I, Hey, they got to know that my cup of coffee is, you know, like fair trade, blah, 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 Brand blah. out, baby. Yeah. And then on this <laughs> other hand, it's like, I'm eating this, you know, organic, whatever scone and yep. I'm out here supporting local farms. I'm doing that. And, and there are some genuine people who are doing that. And, and that's awesome. Like I'm not knocking. And that's what, that's yeah. what starts. Yeah. It started from there. And then it's like, oh wow, these people are getting attention. So it's all about just getting attention. And I guess I'm, I'm, you know, I'm bringing this all back to kind of me figuring this out of where I belong is, um, I'm, I'm cooking at all these fancy restaurants and they're, they're amazing. Don't get me wrong. And the staffers are awesome. The chefs there are great. And I just felt like there was just something missing in my soul. I felt like there was something missing. Um, and, and I, what I would do as a young cook was I always just emulated all these fancy chefs I knew because that's what was, was fancy. And that's what, you know, was getting attention. So even like, getting all these like the perfect spoons all the right spoons for plating getting all the tweezers get, i did all that you know getting all the really cool gadgets you know the instant like like you know like the sous vide machines and this and that and doing all these trends like i was doing it and but it was so soulless it's like taking a five-hour energy drink pounding that down going hard for five hours and then crashing for 10 you know and that's just how my soul felt like it wasn't until i like i said i get back to my mom's table i'm eating the food from her table and I'm realizing that, man, why does my soul come so alive when she puts, uh, when she starts a pot of soup with pork bones and lemongrass and ginger, mung mustard greens, and we eat that over rice. It's, first of all, it ain't sexy. 
Uh, it's not going to get that many Instagram likes on it if I took a picture, even if I did the contrast right and you know heightened up all the saturation. Even with high contrast, yeah, even with high what? contrast, yeah. <laughs> I know that it's not going to get that. It it kind of looks pretty blah, yeah. You know, as I think about it, I'm like, wow, this is the stuff I love. This is the stuff that like when I come over to my mom and dad's house, like the other day I was there, my mom's like, hey, we have braised pig's feet. You like you? I'm like, mm, I'm down. You know, and they and so these. And then I was just like, you know what? Screw it. Like, even then, I was still hesitant, right? So you're right. So it was still Union Kitchen. Not mm-hmm. There's no Hmong in there because I didn't want people to, like, be like, ah, Hmong food? I don't know what that is, you know? So there was no Hmong in there. So it was just Union Kitchen. And it wasn't until a friend of mine who really challenged me on that and says, you can't, you can't be unapologetic about what you make. Like, let them come to you. You know, the whole uh, feel the dreams idea. If you build it, they will come. Let them come to you because people are bored with, you know, all these other stuff, all, all, all the stuff that we've been kind of trend stuff. And, uh, and then I, you know, a friend of mine also just kind of helped me with some of the wording of everything. And so we just came up with, you know, he came up, you know, we were talking through and I just said, you know what, it seems like food is about a narrative. So we kind of just coined this phrase that every, every dish has a narrative. You follow that narrative long enough and close enough, you get to the food, the people behind the food. And once you're there, it's not about the food. It's actually about people. That food is a catalyst into cultivating great relationships. And we use the word catalyst and cultivating. And, and I intentionally use those words because it's a catalyst. Like, what does a catalyst do? It, it, it starts a reaction and cultivating a relationship. A relationship is cultivated. It's not like, oh, yeah, we're buddies, right? We're cool. Great. Did we just become best yeah, friends? Yeah, 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 dude. <laughs> um, but that cultivation, it's like almost, it's, uh, it's farming, right? Cultivating something. Yeah. It takes time. It takes care. You know, like like a field that's not cultivated and not taken care of and it's not tent, it doesn't grow. But if, like, if you want relationships to grow, you got to take time and to care. What's the best way of doing it? Gathering around food. You know, it, it, you know, even old friends have to not see, wow, like go grab a drink. Like just grab a burger together. You know? And again, it doesn't take that much yeah. and that relationship gets cultivated. That's beautiful man and it's it's so true it's it's like especially when you get older and you get so busy mm-hmm. the i've I found the people that i end up hanging out with more with where it's like i want to grab a burger who's who's my burger who's my burger person again? Yeah, Even just yeah, having yeah. like chef stefan a couple weeks ago i'm like yo, yeah yo. i was texting her yesterday yeah. like, when are we doing this charcuterie though yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's it's a very deeply personal thing and it's 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 funny because this is just how my brain works like the marketing side mm-hmm. is like so how can something like a Hmong kitchen mm-hmm. in a population of people that mm-hmm. outside of the Hmong people probably know little to nothing about mm-hmm. it work? And how did you develop such, and yeah. th- this is, this is going to be me speculating mm-hmm. here. How did you develop such a hardcore fan base so quickly? <laughs> and there's this interesting marketing concept and you see a lot of people doing it. It's, it's sometimes labeled as like shock marketing. Okay. But what you do is you take the thing you're known for most and mm. you do an extreme version of that. Mm-hmm. And people are either going to love that. Stunt burgers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Stunt burgers? No, what's no. that? A stunt burger is like, you know, instead of just like, it's like how crazy can we build a burger? Yeah. You know, like, oh, we put pork belly on there and pulled pork and another slab of bacon and a smoked brisket on top of, you know, and we call that like the barbecue master burger, you know? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. That's, 
it's like shock value. Yeah. And so you take what you're known for and mm-hmm. you do it to an extreme. Yeah. And you'll find some people will be like, this is too much for me. Yeah. I'm out. But guess what? Those people aren't, those, yeah. those are the people who just like your stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you are a little bit too much this, mm-hmm. I'm out. But then mm-hmm. you'll find that the people okay. who see you doing it to the full extent, I'm doing yeah. Hmong food to the best mm-hmm. of my ability to, mm-hmm. as, as Hmong as I can make this kitchen, mm-hmm. you're going to find way more mm-hmm. that these people are going to be with you every step of the way. And it's, it's similar in coffee yeah. that there's a lot of like in business, there's a lot of concessions you have to make mm-hmm. that like, Oh, okay. We have to do this. We have to do that. But at some point you have to say, no, I'm not going to buy cheaper coffee yeah. to be able to price compete with Starbucks because then we're just another coffee. Mm-hmm. We want to create coffees that yes, they're admittedly expensive for a 12 ounce mm-hmm. bag of coffee, but they're The flavor in them. I have, when I do a sampling at Lund's mm-hmm. back when COVID wasn't a thing, Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, half the people I give the coffee to will straight up tell, and this is a weird thing about being behind the tables. People yeah. will tell you what exactly they're thinking. They'll be like, this is weird. I This mm-hmm. is not from this. Uh, no. Yeah. But then the other half will be like, I've not had a coffee like this. Yeah. And that person, I've always said that the people will tell people about things they love mm-hmm. and about things they hate. I will not tell you about something in the middle. I will not tell you, oh, mm. dude, I had the okayest burger last yeah, week. Yeah. If you're really hungry and you happen to be right there, yeah. you should. it's like I love it or hate it. But even if someone told me I hated that burger, I'd be mm-hmm. still kind of curious to try it. Be like, yeah. oh, okay, well, I still want to try it. And so in doing that, I think even though it's a huge risk and that's mm-hmm. it's very nerve-wracking to do something that no one is doing, but mm-hmm. I think strategically when you think about it, it's a very good decision but that that I'm looking at from a very simple, like, you know, the afterwards analysis, hindsight 2020, where at the time, I can't, is that when the shift happened for you? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing is in the Hmong world, in the Hmong culture, the Hmong, you know, group world, whatever, we still can't agree on what is Hmong food ourselves. I was literally just yeah. about to ask, like, here's my, my stupid blanket yep. question. Like, what is Hmong yep. food? So so we still can't argue. Everyone's got their own opinion on it. It's, you know, and it's like, dude, I'm not going to get into that conversation because I'm like, it's not worth my time. And not because I'm too good for it or that's not my attitude. It's just like, it, we're going to talk in circles. Um, You know, uh, are you Lord of the Rings fans? Yeah. Okay. So remember when um, Mary and Pippin... Uh, when and there was like all the old trees, they were like <laughs> discussing. You know what I'm talking? Yeah, we're gonna nerd out a little bit. Yeah, I'm so, excited yeah. to see where this is going. Okay, so you know how like they're like you know because like they're like hey, war's happening, like battles happening, mm-hmm. right? And the tree, the old tree guard or whatever those guys are, were like, you know, they're like oh, okay, and they're like bum, da, 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 you know, yeah. And as it no, Mary, Mary and Pippin, right? Those are the two are the, is that one person? Like, do you know, I know, I know the, who the, you're the two little hobbits sure, were yeah. like, come on, we got to go. We got to go. You know, like we got to go to, um, you know, we got to go. And he goes, and, and the, the tree that they're sitting on is like, he turns around. He's like, we're just like, like he's like, sitting along the lines. Like, we're just discussing if we should discuss this. Yeah. You know? And he's, they're like, wait, what? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like, so like the whole idea was like just having a discussion of agreeing of, okay, can we have this discussion? That's how it is with monk people when it comes to monk food. It's like, it's like they argue about should we argue about this and then they'll have the argument about it or the discussion or whatever and so i'm just like i just don't have time for this so one of the things i as i think about monk food i'm like what's the best way to explain monk food and i tell people that monk food isn't a type of food it's a philosophy of food it's a way of thinking about food and what i mean with that is monk food 
has always been this. Uh, if you want to talk about it as a type of food, we, we're always in the we're in this process of growth of always growing, and the reason we are doing that is because our people, no matter where we went, we glean from all these different cultures that we're around. Because we're, we're traveling people. We, we move around. We, we rub shoulders with other cultures. To be able to survive with other cultures and other heritages around you and other groups around you, you have to be able to work with them. And you, gotta be, you have to have this symbiotic relationship. I, and I have to imagine even just hearing your dad's, I, I don't even know what to call it, where you just walk up and can get stuff that be, yeah. your geographical location because yeah. you're creating relationships with yep. farmers that I have to imagine not mm-hmm. only being around the people and how they prepare their food, mm-hmm. but just what's available has to change exactly. dramatically depending exactly. on where you are. So before all these restaurants are like, oh, we have a rotating menu. Da, 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 da. It's like, yeah, we do that all the time. You know, you just eat what you have. You know, it's not, there wasn't a choice. You know, there wasn't like, oh, mom, when you go to the store, can you get this and this and this? It's like, nah, man, you don't make requests to your mom and dad. Who's making the food for you? You know, as kids, you take what they give you. And that's always been the attitude. And so that's the same philosophy with Hmong food, no matter where we are. And it, uh, we'll find a way. That's like, it's been like this Hmong philosophy. We'll find a way. You work the problem, you move to the next. Work the problem, move to the next. So find a way. And this, it's again, like I said, I speak to young Hmong kids. Like when we, when we do, like when I go to schools and speak to them and stuff, I always talk about that. I talk about the idea that there's this generation of Hmong, our, our grandparents and parents, they always found a way. So when, when you want to quit, you have to ask yourself, are you going to find a way for the next generation? And, and, and that's what I think about when I think about our food. Like, for example, like we'll, we still use flavors that we're familiar with, you know, um, like, like I tell people, um, the, like, it's like a painting, right? And you know, I always use this example and I say, Hmong food is like, um, it's like, or sorry, Hmong flavors are like the canvas. It's the it's the it's the consistent. It's the base. It's always the same. But the paint that we use is going to change. You know what kind of paint? What kind of color? You know. So for example, like here in the north, we we have great um, access to a lot of um, root vegetables. Let's play with that. Let's use our flavor base that we know. Let's you know these very uh, herbal slash very like pungent flavors and I guess you know use the word pungent but you get what I'm saying yeah just these strong yeah. one quote umami flavors aromatic aromatic yeah aromatic flavors and we, we need to use that but then instead of you know using it on vegetables and you know that are native to Laos and Thailand we're going to use it to the north uh, you know so, so what's here so we got our rutabaga you know we got our kohlrabi you know we got you know uh, different kinds of turnips radishes and when you do that, you actually use a language. Food is a universal language, right? So then when, when we have guests that come in and eat, and they're going, hey, this is rutabaga, but I've never tasted rutabaga that way before. We're still using that language that they understand. Like rutabaga, turnip, whatever, you know, cabbage. But we're going we're gonna to use the, you know, we're going to use the, you know, we're going to use the, but that canvas is still remains mm-hmm. the same. And that's what I believe in Hmong food. You know, for example, um, like we we have a my mom and dad. You know, they they love you know hunting small game. They used to anyways, and they're a little older now. But there's this like squirrel stew that every monk kid eats growing up. We love it. I love it. It's awesome. Um, you can't get farm squirrels. I looked everywhere. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> 
and you know so we can't sell it but um it's a squirrel stew uh you know and i love it it's delicious it's it's like if i ate it i'm like it's a squirrel it's awesome and, and people might think that's weird but it's like dude you gotta do what you gotta do right so growing yeah. up it wasn't like they went squirrel hunting for the sake of squirrel hunting it was actually you know it was you know i, I jokingly told some of my friends i i lived oregon trail you know, it's like, you know, you know, talking about yeah. Oregon Trail when you go and you go, you're hunting and you, yeah. get, you maybe get three squirrels, but then that kind of gets you to the next thing. Sometimes that's what we did, you know? Yeah. So, so, but I'm like, what's the closest to squirrel we can get that's, you know, along those lines? So we're like rabbit. Mm-hmm. So it's like doing that dish with rabbit, but, you know, but re- originated from squirrel. And, and what's really delicious about that dish is the stew itself is a little thicker. Mm-hmm. So what, so what you end up doing is you get sticky rice and that sticky rice, be, you know, for, for the, for the broth or whatever you want to say, like the, the sauce for it, it's a little thicker. Yeah. So you just dip it in that and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And it's I, delicious. I, I will tell you that, well, first of all, you should probably tell the squirrel story after they've tried it and it's delicious <laughs> yeah. because, but here's the thing is hearing you talk about food, mm-hmm. basically I'm at the point where it's like, if you're making it, I'm in. And we went to the, uh, I went to the V9 pop up a couple oh, yeah. of weeks ago and duck hearts on the menu. Mm-hmm. I've never yeah. had it, but yeah. I go, you know what? This, I, I've always liked the philosophy of using the animal from head to toe, just mm-hmm. from, yeah. and it not, there's the environmental standpoint, yeah, that yeah. You get all the food waste that's happening, but you go, this is really how it should be. And also the side tangent here. I wanted this weird rabbit hole about organ meat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Have you heard of the carnivore diet? Yeah, that's just like you literally only eat meat. Me. And I go, there's no way you could physically do that. Apparently, the way you can do it, and the reason mm-hmm. so many people are not able to do it, is mm-hmm. because we don't eat organ meat. Yeah, and organ meat has a lot of minerals. Has a lot yep. of minerals, and this yeah. is, these are actually the most like health beneficial yeah. meats out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that thought popped in my head. But honestly, at the root of that goes, you know what? After this conversation with you and like learning about that, and I was like, duck heart. I didn't even think twice mm-hmm. because of that. And also, it's funny with squirrel that. Uh, part of the reason it's weird in the U.S. is this wasn't always the way that, like, in the 1800s in the mm-hmm. Bayou down south, yeah, it was a huge thing, yeah. And it actually hunting squirrels became illegal because mm-hmm. so many people were doing it that mm-hmm. they almost went extinct. Mm-hmm. And then because it became illegal, it became like uh, like shun, shun, and, yeah, yeah, and then the shun taboo. turns to like, oh, this is yeah. just weird now. Yeah, and I tell you, people don't eat city squirrels; those are weird. <laughs> like that's that's gross. Like they go through trash, and you know, like. They're rodents, yeah, yeah, you know, like city squirrel. But when we do eat squirrel, and when, when I say squirrel, people are like, oh, like off the street, you guys just like take one off on the backyard. I'm like, no, like we go out to like, there's like hunting land and farms. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like these are country squirrels. Like they get real. It's, I, I was talking to one of my buddy who's a food writer, Steve Hoffman, and I'm like, man, it's, it's all about the thighs, dude. You look at these guys sitting down. <laughs> they're squatting down to eat the, you know, eat that egg corn or whatever. You just... I'm just, I'm a thigh dude, you know, like you just see that hindquarter just real, like they're fattening up for the winter. It's like, it's, it's go time. Get the shotguns. It's go time. I will be completely honest with you. This is the (laughs) first time I've ever had someone describe a squirrel to me and I go, you know what? That that does sound kind of good right now. It's a little chilly outside and I stew with a sticky rice. Bro, bro. It's, you know, you, I tell people if, if, like my, my parents, like, you know, they would always, you know, when they, when they go out or their friends will go and get a few of them, like they're. They're good. You can also, and then you can also tell the old ones from the young ones. It sounds so bad, but it's you can totally tell because the young ones are more tender. <laughs> you know, they're just more you know, the easier. You know, they're the young ones a little tougher. You got you know you gotta you gotta braise it a little longer. Yeah. Anyway, squirrels. But you know, but but we we did that with rabbit. 
you know, and using like rabbit and we have, mm. you know, there's, we have some purveyors that have rabbit farms and stuff like that. How long did it take from launching? Cause union kitchen, uh, you launched as union kitchen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long until so, after that, that you added mung mung, into it? Uh, probably a year and a half. And did that change how people viewed it? If it was their first time at that time, I think, it? I think everyone knew that it was, um, union and everyone kind of knew by that time that it was like monk food. But what was really weird was like there's union everything around Union Station, Union mm-hmm. Depot, Union Rooftop. So everyone just kept associating us with them, like or Union Gospel Mission even. Yeah. So we just got so I'm like, look, we got we have to just made a little distinction. So Union Monk Kitchen, you know, so then that it's it's a Monk Kitchen that you know, uh and then it's it's just that idea. I mean we we're still doing pop up at that time, you know, so as we we're doing pop ups, we're getting more consistent pop ups. We just said, hey, what 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 is? I always say, what? How do you define a kitchen? And as like, you define a kitchen, it's not by walls, it's not by equipment. A kitchen is a, any area where food is made, people are served, and hospitality reigns overall. And so we could literally a tailgating party could be a kitchen, you know, if you really want to call that. Is my apartment still a kitchen, even though my oven is like two feet wide? Completely. <laughs> like a, you know, you can't. It's like where like home is never really a building. Yeah. Home is you know home is where the heart is. You know, kind of deal. And, and I think that that's kind of that philosophy that we came where it's like, no matter where we're going to be placed. So for example, we did this wedding up in like, gosh, it was like an hour away from the Canadian border in Northern Minnesota. And it was on the lake. It was beautiful. We, there was no kitchen. So we, we, we filled up a sprinter van, drove up there and we built our own kitchen in the woods. And it was just like, it was frustrating, but I loved it. It was so challenging rolling spring rolls and MacGyver style yeah MacGyvering style yeah. <laughs> so yeah so that's that's, that's another joke uh, I always say you know my, my, my dad he's a tinker so he went tinkers with stuff as a kid where I was like mom what's dad doing mom like, your, your dad's MacGyvering out there you know like Richard Dean Anderson MacGyver and so we just jokingly just we just switched to mungivering. We have the mung we like we when we get into a situation it's kinda hard, we're like, we're gonna mungiver this bros. Like, well that's the vibe I got even at the pop up a couple weeks oh. ago. Cinder blocks, great <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Done. Wood. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, yeah, that, that grill, you saw that great grill, you know, that little grill we saw, that's, we took that up there and we cooked for a hundred or 220, 230 people. Yeah. It's just in the middle of the woods. Here's a side question. You yeah. can opt not to answer this yeah, or not. When working with like the city or the state, yeah. is it hard to be able to get things like that approved for a pop-up or anything like yeah, that? Man. Just, you gotta say no English. You know, <laughs> that's good. Uh, you know, th- th- so that's where I messed up. Yeah, yeah, dude. You just be like, you know, you can just be like, oh, you're trying to be German or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Russian. You're like, da. No, no, this is coffee machine. Niet, niet. Niet, da. No, one of the things that we have been able to do is have just great relationship with um, the health department and just being like, hey, man, like, what are the rules? Like, what are the bare minimums that do we need? What do we need that would make this safe for everyone? Yeah. So, you know, um, so we're always really open dialogue with them. Yeah. And they always set out a set of rules, you know. Yeah. And, and, so. and it's like these rules are put in place for very good reasons. Yeah, definitely. But you do look at some of the rules and be like, yes, I understand why this rule is in place, but we're mm-hmm. doing it a little differently. This yeah. is happening right now because we have this mobile coffee unit. It's yeah. the same thing. So I was curious about that. What point... How do I phrase? It? What point did like things pop off? Because you go from yeah. have, you go from pop ups, you open a semi permanent. Is that fair to call union? Yeah, a residency. Yeah, a residency a, yeah. Uh, at at uh, Sociable Cyberworks yep. with Union yep. later to become Union Monk Kitchen, yep. and then all of a sudden, 
it's like I I knew your name before meeting you, and I was like, I don't know why. Well, it's because I love food, and your name was just <laughs> everywhere for a minute or for a while, and then I was like, oh. And sometimes I don't think of it as like, oh, that's that's a that's cool, dude, cooking, yeah. and people caught on to it. At, yeah. what, do you, did you feel that in a specific moment, or was it just momentum? No, I think the most for me, I I, I really didn't pay attention to that. Um, the, the, for for me, it was getting getting the story of my mom and dad out hands down. I didn't, I didn't give a crap about anything else. Like, life was pretty simple. So what, what, what really happened was my dad had a really bad work accident. I don't know. It was probably like four years ago, five years ago. And he felt, uh, he, you know, uh, he fell off a stair. He, you know, he works like he builds homes, puts in insulations. That's what he does. I think he was working on, on this deck and you know, their, their work group was working on this deck and he fell off the, he fell off the stair, fell back and fractured his back of his skull on a railing. And, you know, and it was pretty rough. And so he went to the, he was in the ICU for like six weeks, you know, he had to learn how to like rehab a little bit. And like at that time he, they were afraid that he was going to have a stroke because there was like blood that was leaking in his brain. And then, but then they had like, so it was, it was all, it was like damn you, damn you don't kind of situation. And so he was in the ICU and I remember, uh, you know, they were living in Wisconsin at this point. So it was in Marshfield clinic, uh, Marshfield hospital, which is, you know, like one of the big hospitals in Wisconsin and so it's like three-ish hours from here and so we, I drove down for a weekend when it happened and you know my sister you know my siblings from out of state they all came flew in and you know I think my mom was pretty wrecked because they've been together for a while so yeah. she just doesn't know how to do life without him and so she was pretty wrecked we have family come in and everything and so my dad you know in, in, in our church he was an elder in the church he was a pretty big part of their com- our community back at home so like everybody was kind of like everyone just stopped everything and just went um, and among people, when, when, when someone is hurting like that, what we do is literally everybody just comes <clears throat> and we take over the waiting room. This is just what we do. And I have people in the medical world. They're like, yeah, like the Hmong people, they just all like just gather. And it's like, they just don't leave. I'm like, yeah, that's what we do. We, that's how you support people. Like you show, you're there, you show up. You don't just call them. You don't text them. Oh, we're, our thoughts sending out good vibes. They don't. Yeah. We don't do that. Peas and peas. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like yeah. we actually like they show up. If it means it's a four hour drive, you know, my parents still do it. You know. So I, mean, I got there. I was like one of the last ones there, and I didn't really want to see him because not like I didn't want to see him, but it's just like I didn't know how I was going to control him. And and at this point, things were kind of starting to roll with Union Kitchen, you mm-hmm. know, or Union Monk Kitchen. It was starting to roll, and and it was all about like a lot of people were like, yeah, how does it feel to be the voice of the Hmong people? You know, of, of oh, sorry, of the Hmong food and how. You know, and a lot of people were just saying, like, this is so cool. Like, you're the guy that's going to speak for our people, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I'm, I, I never, I didn't want that burden. Like, at that point, my cousin Chris and I kind of, like, started this together. And I'm just like, Chris, man, I don't want that. He goes on me too, dude. Among people are super critical of everything, you know. And so, I remember I go, I go in and uh, it's in the ICU. It's on a weekend. So, like, the whole place, like, the lights were off. And it's, ICU is already a little freaky already. So, I, I go in, and for the first time in my life, I see my dad laying up on the on the uh, bed, and he um, they, they had to keep him sedated. Uh, so, he had this, there was this big wrap around his head, and they weren't sure what to do yet, and his brain was, you know, was swollen, and he could kind of barely remember, barely talk, but the doctor said, hey, if you go in there, um, just ask him if he knows you. Don't try to overstimulate them, but, like, just make sure if he's, like, still, what his memory is, and if he still remembers you, and so my dad's my hero, right? Uh, he's fought a war. He's done all these things. You know, he's, he's a hero to many people. People respect him. He, he's one of those men who, when he speaks, people listen to him, especially in our community. And so I ended up walking in and I, I looked at him and he was just like kind of groggy. And I'd never seen him that week before. I never seen him that hurt before. 
Uh, the worst I've ever seen my dad before was he like cut his finger at uh, his workshop once and he like, hit a bandage on his thumb. You know, like that's the worst <laughs> I've ever seen my dad. Even when he's sick, he's still like working for us. Even yeah. when he's got a fever, when he's not feeling well, he's still like pumping away. And I remember I looked at him and I said, hey, dad, do you know who I am? And he kind of looks at me and he kind of like rolls his eye a little bit. He's come back and forth and he just says, um, he says, I think you're, you're like, he's like, you're my son. You're my son. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, do you know my name? And he, says, and he just kept saying, you're my son or something like that. And I left. So we were driving back to the city. I had to work. So we were driving back to the city. And I was just kind of like zoning out. And I just thought to myself, frick, if he dies, because like the doctor was like, we're not sure. Like head injuries, like it could be great one day and then boom, turns on the next day. So the doctor was giving us reality, which I'm like, I appreciate that. So, so I was like, if he dies in Marshall, Wisconsin this weekend, like he won't get to see his legacy. And I think that sometimes when we think of the word legacy, we actually think about, oh, after they're gone, then we'll talk about them. But uh, how great would it be if we talk about them and celebrate them when they're still here? And that, that day changed. I think it changed the trajectory of Union Monk Kitchen. That is the day that it changed the trajectory of where we are going with V9. And it changed, if you want to call it, quote, unquote, our brand, whatever you want to call it. It changed all of that. Because then it, be not, it didn't become about, oh, yeah, what, what, how do you write your story so then you're part of the culinary narrative in Twin Cities. I don't give a shit about that anymore. What I was, what I did care about is how do I tell their story and honor them and make sure that they see that their legacy will live on while they're living. And one day when they pass, they can go in peace knowing that, Hey, like the kids are okay. Like we raised good kids, you know? And so it changed me, man. Like it, it, it changed me. And, and then, even the way I cook, like why are, why am I so adamant on cooking over wood fire? Not because it's sexy and it's cool and like everyone's doing it. And why am I so animate that when my boys cook over wood fire, they get it right. Cause that's what my dad taught me. That is ingrained inside of me. Why am I so adamant about how we, you know, do our food and how we handle hospitality and how we treat people when they come in? Cause my mom and dad, they're our, our home was always a home where people can come and rest. People can come and take a break. Like, you know, in our church, like when missionaries came home, when, the, when, when, we, when we had new pastors that come in, my parents would always open our house and say, hey, come, come rest here. We'll take care of you. You know, even, even when they go out and they, you know, like, for example, if like there was a Sunday week or a, a Saturday we go out, we, you know, we butcher a whole pig. My mom and dad would save a certain part of that, you know, some the best cuts of meat and bring it over to uh, one of the missionaries house and one of the pastors house, you know, and say, Hey, like, we're going to take care of you. And, and I, I want to take all of that and put it into V9. And we are doing that. We're seeing pieces of that in V9. You know, um, I tell people, I love, uh, I love movies. I love watching movies. We were kind of dorking out about a movie. And, and I, and in the movie Batman begins, you know, the uh, Christian, uh, Christopher Nolan one, there's a part where, um, where Batman, where Bruce Wayne comes back and he's on the plane with Alfred and Alfred goes, what are you going to do? And, and Bruce Wayne is like, you know, we, we have to fight evil. Like we have to fight evil in Gotham. And he's like, well, how are you going to do that? And he's like, you know, he goes, and he's just like, Bruce Wayne is just a man. But if I give him a symbol, you know, if, if, if I created a symbol 
that, you know, that put fear in them, like evil will know. Darkness will know that, you know, that this symbol stands for, you know, truth and justice and peace. And and I, as I think about that, I'm like, you know, I, I think about that scene. I'm like, that's so incredible because, you know, like, you know, if you think about from the view of Batman, like he, he's a symbol. Anybody can wear the cape and cow as long as they're standing for that symbol of Batman. Like people like, you know, bad guys will always fear Batman, you know, regardless of who wears that cape and cow, boy, girl, doesn't matter, you know, like. And I think of Vinai as a symbol. Like, regardless of who's cooking in the back, regardless of what, you know, what ethnicity is the team that's cooking, what we stand for is, you know, when we think about comfort, we think about peace, we think about um, caring for people. Like, that's what we stand for. It's that symbol. That when people see that V, you know, that what they're, what they're actually seeing um, is my mom and dad's legacy. And so it might not be the vegetables that they work with. It might not be the meat that my dad taught me how to grow with originally because all that stuff can change, right? Time changes yeah. all that stuff. And we got to be open for change. But it's a, it's a, the, at the core of it, it's about taking care of people in their time of need. So, so even if it's a wealthy person or family from YZ that's coming in or just a mediocre, just a regular blue-collar dude from St. Paul come in, I don't care who you are. I don't care who you voted for. I don't care where your ideology is. As long as you leave all the crazy at the door and you can come and you want to come in by coming in and you treat everyone in there with dignity and respect, we will treat you with dignity and respect. And just the whole idea, that whole idea of like, oh, you make sure you treat people first. Well, first, then we'll treat you. It's like a conditional thing. Yeah. But what if we unconditionally love people? What if we say, regardless of wherever your history is or whatever your background is, you come in here and and you get a blank slate and we treat you with dignity and respect and hopefully by being a part of you know this the Vang family here traditions that that Vang family hospitality hopefully that changes a little bit of them so when they leave and they go to their neighborhood they were so affected and infected by us that while they're at their while they're home they knock on their neighbor's door and said hey you know, come join us for dinner. Not because, you know, we, you know, whatever, we're trying to be cool and trendy or whatever, yeah. but come join us for dinner because we had an awesome experience of Eni. You know, we were treated so well that we can't just keep this inside of ourselves, that we need to share this. And so it's really not even about, let's get a lot of people here. No, it's like, we want the people here, but we want to do our best to make sure your experience is great and then you know that you're treated and cared for. That, that's... Oh man, it's. I think when motivation changes from internal to external, I think it also changes the definition of success. That when you're sitting there being like, "Well, how would it be branded if I put it as yeah. Hmong? How would it be perceived? Should we have it?" And it's like that's like mm-hmm. a very internal kind of like, "Oh, this is a business decision. I want to succeed in business." And uh, mm-hmm. and this is something I struggle with too. Is uh, when motivation becomes about others, mm-hmm. this is something that shifted business for me is I realized the best part about having a business is I can positively change other people's life. And ironically, it's turned me into a stress monster that that's all I want to do now. But that's a beautiful kind of lesson to take that when it shifted to not even just being about what you're doing, but why you're doing it, mm-hmm. that it's 
it's easy to perceive. It's easy to perceive when I talk to you. It's easy to perceive when I taste your food. No one's going to taste your food and not think there's a story behind it. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a McDonald's burger. It's not fast food. It's not somebody trying to make it to the customer's liking. It's, I have a story to tell. And the way I've learned to tell it is through food, which as Mm -hmm. I've told you, I think is the most intimate experience you, you can offer someone is cooking for, I mean, even just everybody has a way they make a burger yeah. and just making someone a burger, the, the, the anticipation and the anxiety you can feel as someone who's not a super skilled chef, mm-hmm. that might be their story that this is how my dad taught mm-hmm. me to make. Oh. And that's, I think that's really impactful. And I'm so looking forward to V9 when it opens. How do you even begin? <laughs> Cause Oh man, this is like got me a little bit. It's heavy. Uh, mm-hmm. in a way it's almost, I don't know if you call it a burden or a motivation mm-hmm. that I want to tell my parents story Yeah. with that in mind. How do you even begin to be like, this is what our brunch menu is going to look yeah, like? <laughs> yeah. As long as we, when people come in, we, we treat them fairly. We treat them well. We respect them. Um, uh, I think that, I think that it starts there. And I feel like the food is like the condiment to that. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. those are like the, the main dish is hospitality and the food then becomes the side dishes. You know what I'm saying? So like, it doesn't, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but it, 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 I mean, it does matter. Yeah, of course. But like the food is extra when you're having a great experience, like you, uh, you and uh, I both the know. The food you, is a part of the experience yeah. is not the definition of success of coming into Vinay is not mm-hmm. I had a dish I liked how it tasted mm-hmm. yeah that has to be a part of it is, mm-hmm. what, you're, is that what, kind yeah, of what you're getting yeah at? yeah 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 it, it, it's a part of it but it's not the main part yeah. you know like yeah it's Again, a restaurant wild to yeah hear. it's a restaurant and yeah we do food yeah but but that's why I think that restaurants have to start thinking of it as a like when we have to look at restaurants as a whole right like for example with Folly like and what you guys are doing, and you guys are opening this genius bar. By the way, I liked your little uh, Steve Jobs thing. Uh, <laughs> like you know how you guys are doing that. Yeah. Like it's yeah, you guys are sourcing great coffee, and you have some incredible coffee for people to drink, no doubt. But if but if you could, you can have the best dang coffee out there, and be like, hey, hey, here's coffee, have fun. This is really good. People are gonna be like, okay, you know. But what you're doing is you're creating, you're 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 helping kind of with this experience that they come in and they can ask questions fully and there's no such thing as a dumb question and you guys are taking care of them and 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 it's almost like um it's almost like what you guys create is almost like this um the best way of saying it is just like going to your friend's house and trying a bunch of really good coffee you know what i'm saying i know exa- that's and, and exactly that's, it. and that connection there is that's hospitality man and that's so crucial the best restaurants are the ones that have that you know that hospitality you know, and, and they're the ones that are, you know, uh, taking care of people and making sure that all the little and you know, all the little things are happening. And so I, I really think that, you know, that's that's a that's a kind of going beyond, you know. Um, uh, and so I really think that the food we can we could tell them we could tell people all about like the food and what, what we're doing. And yeah. that's really cool. And, and, and some of it, it might not be some people's cup of tea, you know. Yeah. But if we really say, hey, like, you know, like the duck hearts. Like the way that we, you know, the way that we um, season the duck hearts, we, we say, hey, have you ever had a really good pastrami? Or, you know, do you like eating pastrami? <laughs> oh, yeah, we like pastrami. And like this duck heart kind of has that, you know, it has those flavors of pastrami because of the peppercorns. And they're like, 
Oh wow! Okay, and then if you think of duck hearts, they're they're basically kind of like little like beef nuggets. Yeah, that's what they are basically. And a heart is a muscle, right? It's just a very lean cut of muscle. And the duck hearts are a little bigger, so it's like a little little beef nugget that almost tastes like pastrami. And they're like, oh wow, that's really cool. And then I'm like, oh, you, but you have those peppery notes. So here's the noodles that go with it, and the noodles or the rice or whatever will mellow that out. Oh wow! If you talk someone through this and, and you kind of explain and kind of when I came over and you guys are you know walking me through some of the coffee, then I get it. Yeah, you know, well, and, it's like we try to do the same thing where it's like, do you like dark roast? And like, yeah, it's my favorite. And yeah. you know, even our dark roast, like wink yeah. wink, it's a it's a dark yeah, yeah, roast. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna use the term you like, but yeah. really, we're just gonna try to find the things you like about it. Yeah, and that's kind of our philosophy too. Is I love what you said about coming over to a friend's house. Yep, and that's exactly what we want it to be. Is you nailed right on the head what I think is one of the biggest problems in high-end coffee is the we only focus on the greatest coffee in the world mm. and we're going to prepare it in this insane way and then give it to you and then if you don't appreciate it you you're, I don't like you mm-hmm. like you're, you you don't even deserve this coffee because you don't even know what it is and yeah. uh, I think the only way you can grow and get more people excited about mm-hmm. not just coffee but food everything is if yeah. you're if they want to be there mm-hmm. <laughs> like no one's going to want to learn if they walk into a place and they're like i feel uncomfortable the only people who want to be there are the ones that are more concerned about like what others might think about them and like mm-hmm. oh am i cool because i'm hanging out here oh okay we've been going for a minute here but yeah uh, and we can end on this yep. is something that really resonated from our first uh, episode that <laughs> d- d- didn't record, but it's honestly it's been sticking in the back of my mind because yeah. I'm uh, like near panic attack every mm-hmm. day with the tasting and tour room, mm-hmm. just like trying to yeah, get people yeah. to show up and realizing that it's not as easy as mm-hmm. it, it, it can look sometimes. And one thing that sticks in the back of my head is is your your father's story mm-hmm. of getting to Vinay. Because, mm, yeah. I mean, it, honestly, I'm not even just pandering here that there were a few moments where I'm like, yeah, but it's not like he is dad. Like, yeah, <laughs> th- th- yeah. this it's, is tough. This is hard. But like, it, it's what yeah. you're saying is remembering the past is humbling. Yeah. So his his story of and then I talked to him is it's, it's it's not, you know, it's really interesting. But in the in the Hmong community and especially in like a lot of the dudes his age and kind of who went through the war, his story isn't anything too special from that like it's they, they've there's a lot of his buddies and a lot of people you know they have those same stories you know um i mean there's stories of moms who had who while they were escaping you know laos to get, try to get to thailand that the kids would one of their you know one of the babies would be crying 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 or if the or some of the kids are too loud what they do is they would dope them with opium to kind of um to sedate them so that they wouldn't cry, they wouldn't make noise, so they can hide quietly. So that if patrols come through, you know, it it's crazy. It's the, the the length you would go to escape when it comes about survival. So it's like, and a lot of families did that, and it was just that's what we have to do. So my dad, after the war, when the during the war, uh, the U.S. pulled out in seventy five, and the word came down that hey, we no longer have U.S. government support anymore. We're kind of on our own, um, and not everyone's going to be able to be, ta- you know, like airlifted out. A few hundred people got airlifted out, you know, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of Hmong people. Uh, it was everyone disband. I mean, because at the end of the day, they're a militia, right? Um, and it's like everyone disband, go back home. 
like you know and then so my dad not wanting to leave his men because he was a he was a, i think it was like a lieutenant or second lieutenant or something like that and so he not wanting to leave his men he made sure they all were able to go back everyone's safe then he went back to his he went back home and then uh, when he got back there since he fought in the war he kind of knew uh, how to do land navigation and uh i was like well dad how did you know where to go from your village he goes well i took i had one comp i had the compass he was the only one he said he was the only one that had a compass or something like that and he goes i took the compass and i pointed to basically like southwest or south and he's like we started walking and i'm like oh did you were there trails like no we just started walking south until we hit the mingkong river and that took a couple months and just hiding in the jungles you know camping out you know couple months yeah and just like you gotta just figure it out just gotta work the problem got to figure it out they get to the river and you have to cross the river at night because and especially with no moon so then nobody can see you uh and there's always boat patrols there's trucks coming down and so the Hmong people we are hill people they were mountain people so we're not used to like swimming in rivers the Mekong river is the ninth largest river in the world so it's like a heavy like you know good like it's a big river but then on top of it it's also a harsh flowing river and it wasn't like there wasn't a sign like goes, oh, this is the smoothest part of the river you need to go to. You know what I'm saying? It was just, yeah. you get there, you go. And so when you got there, uh, when they got there, they had a created, uh, so my dad created a, basically a flotation device, but he took a bamboo, a big old bamboo uh, trunk, and he kind of cut it into three pieces and tied it together. It was like almost like a triangle life preserver type thing. And he had a plastic bag, so he put all his, he put his clothes, he, like, he stripped down his underwear, put all his plastic, his clothes in the plastic bag, and then he had his gun, and he had, he had it in the front, you know, and so he held it up there, and with one arm, and the other arm, he paddled, and then people who couldn't swim, like, just, they just tied themselves to him, so you, he's, I'm like, so how did you paddle? He goes, well, you just paddle against the current with one arm, and if you, if you feel like you're getting, like, pushed one way, you switch arms, and you paddle the opposite way, and you just keep doing that until you get to cross, or the river takes you. So eventually they got across, and then you wait there, and then trucks will come. And some of these trucks are patrol trucks, so if they catch you, they put you in internment camps, or they send you back, or they jail you. And then the NGOs, a group, you know, like the um, kind of um, basically, you know, like Red Cross type, you know, yeah. NGO groups there uh, from the the villages, they would make patrols down there too. And then they, when they see people, they put them on the boat, or put them on the truck, and then take them to the village, and then they kind of register you in. And their families were split up that way. You know, people got lost. Pe- many people died. You know, it's like, you know, it, their moms who were like, yeah, I had four kids. Now I'm down to two. You know, and it's just what you do. And I, as I think of that, it's like when you experience something like that and then you come to America, like, even though it's crappy situation here, it's worse there. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. when you've gone through the worst and then you go to somewhere where it's like, well, it's not as bad as that. You learn to appreciate all the little things. And it, it's like the shift from, like, there's always problems in life. There's no such thing mm-hmm. as a problem-free life. Mm-hmm. But it's like the shift from real problems mm-hmm. to good problems. Yeah. And it's almost like th- that story of mm-hmm. what your father did and your mother made it so that good problems were even a possibility. And I have to imagine that building out a restaurant, 
I, I know people who have done it. It, that is an extremely stressful process. It's very capital intensive and, the, yeah. and uh, intensive. And the general rule is whatever your budget is, triple it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. that on its own is an extremely stressful thing, but it's almost like these are good problems to have. And th- this is the thought that the reason I bring this up is this kept popping in my head the last week that I'm like, my biggest worry right now is if people are going to show up to this thing that I've been working on for a year and dropped all this money into, it's a really good problem to have Yeah. versus two, two months mm-hmm. on a compass. I'm, yeah. I'm proud that I got here without using Google Maps for yeah. five minutes away. <laughs> yeah. And so to try to fathom two months, hoping that this compass is working by the yeah. way and getting to the river and then waiting for, and just, and hoping that even after all of that, that it could come down to which truck pulls up. Yeah. And that leads to 10 years yeah. at V9, which, yeah. by the way, is a beautiful... If you want to tell the story any better, you could not have picked a better name for your restaurant. Yeah, we had all these other like kind of names in my head, and I thought, oh, this would be cool, this would be cool. And then I just thought about it, and I'm like, you know what? This, this restaurant is a love letter to my mom and dad. So it's the place they met. It's the place they had us, you know? It's 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 the place that means so much to our people. You know, V Nye from seventy five to ninety two hosted sixty five thousand people. Of that sixty five thousand, ninety percent of them are Hmong. Now those ninety percent, majority of them ended up here in the Midwest. You know, so 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 it's a name. The name itself, the location itself, is so ingrained into our people's culture, into our history, that it plays you know it plays that role. But then it's also where our family started. So that is absolutely beautiful, man. I th- thank you so much for coming in again. Nah, that's no problem. <laughs> uh, equally as impactful as last time. I just, I, I think what you're doing is so cool. And I think Thanks, the, bro. The, the thing I appreciate the most is the way you're doing it. Uh, I, I have said this in the past is that one of my favorite things about having a business is in a, in a way I can choose who to work with mm-hmm. really who not to work with because yeah, it's so yeah. hard to find <laughs> customers. But yeah. it, one of the coolest things is like that external motivation that not only the people working with me or for me, but also mm-hmm. being able to work for like being able to work with you and mm-hmm. being able to potentially build out this amazing coffee program yep. for V I now have the burden or the motivation. It's kind of like, I don't know what the word is that combines yeah. those two things that it's like, oh no, we're not just putting together. Uh, I just don't want them to have a cup of coffee. I want it to be a part of the experience that's telling yeah. your parents' story. Yeah. And, and it ingrains a sense of community into yeah. me that it yeah. makes it much bigger than just yeah. trying to roast really good coffee for people. And that is what I really appreciate about yeah. like the lessons you're dropping on here. Just your, your life story is really yeah. cool. And no, uh, I, appreciate, I, I appreciate it personally because it gives me a lot of perspective and it, it just like, it, it adds this weird excitement and like nervousness that it, it's very motivating. And it's, mm-hmm. sometimes it can be really hard to find motivation, mm-hmm. especially going on month potentially seven of the mm-hmm. lockdown and not knowing everything is yeah. that this has kind of been a really bright spot of getting to meet you getting to learn your story and then working uh with v9 in the future is going to be just like i'm so stoked dude yeah, we're gonna do, I'm, I'm, I'm excited brother we'll put together a killer coffee yeah menu. i'm so <laughs> but th- that's what's amazing to me is like we can talk about something as simple as a coffee menu yeah. but it ties directly to that yeah. story and it has to have depth like i think it's about having depth in like what we're like what we're doing you know it's not like here we made some food here's some coffee enjoy yeah you know it's there's depth in it there's there's history in it and that depth and that history like 
it's like when I'd say, well, hey, when you dine with us at our place, you know, if it comes to like if you're at the trailer, if you're at the pop up, whatever, like you're part of our family. It means you're at the table with us. You're part of the family. You know. And I noticed that at your pop up of V nine that I I came up, you were sitting down with someone else that was eating, and then yeah. you went over and sat with somebody else that was eating, yeah. and then you came over and sat with me, yeah. and I'm like, oh, this is like. It's not just somebody that like, oh, yes, made a sale. Now go eat it and go leave yeah. me five stars. It's like, that's not the worry. And I think that's... A- I mean, there's a worry in that too. <laughs> no, but, that's a- <laughs> no, but but I, I think that, again, first of all, I'm able to do that because we have an incredible crew mm-hmm. and an incredible team that lay hustle hard where they're like, hey, man, like that's what you got to do out there. So we'll do our thing back here. And I love our, our team. Our team's incredible. And then I think the other thing too is, um, uh, well, there's two other things. One is just, I know that that connection with people is very important. And to be able to just talk to people and say, hey, thanks for coming. Like, we really appreciate you coming. And then I think third, it was just tired too. So I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a good time to go sit down. Yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, that's kind of, we've, we've been able to do that because I've been able to do that because there's we have an incredible team who takes care of a lot of the other stuff. So That's awesome. I, I think we'll end it on that. Yeah. I'll end it like I do everyone. Oh, ooh, no, I had a random question pop in my head. Oh, yeah. Uh, because with uh, with Hmong food being yeah. more of a philosophy, yeah. I'm really curious about this is if you could only have mm-hmm. one kitchen utensil, mm-hmm. what would it be? Uh, but be my cleaver. My, there's my, my buddy, of mine, Nate Zerman. He uh, makes knives and he made me this really cool cleaver. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, I don't, I thought I showed it to you. I thought it showed it to another friend. I thought it was you, but he had, he made me this really cool cleaver and the, in the cleaver, uh, the handle is uh, an homage to Hmong knives that are made back in uh, the old land. Back in Thailand and Laos, they have these old school Hmong knives. Are basically they're like part machete, but like he made the handle to kind of represent or to kind of sh- shape and look like that. And it's a really cool cleaver. And uh, I've been learning how to uh, for the last probably like year and a half, two years. I've been just cooking just with the cleaver. Just I want to learn how to do everything on a cleaver, you know, because uh, that's what uh, a lot of Hmong families do, yeah. or a lot of like the old school Hmong dudes, you know, when they're. Uh, when they're cooking it's just a cleaver and they slice dice chop and do all that stuff with it so i've been practicing like it's heavy though yeah because so. like a cleaver really in the intention is to break through bone it, as it, you're, it as is. you're it taking is. apart an animal yep it is but then it's like the way that he shaped the cleaver like it's almost has like a, almost a sentoku kind of you know like tip to it so then it's like you can slice and dice and you can do all that you know so it's really cool i mean it's so fun it's my it's my favorite knife i'll have to get a yeah. picture of that so i can post it when we uh, yeah. go, go live with this on sunday yeah. we'll post that too and yeah. i'll take him in it that's awesome yeah. well now i'll finally end it and say uh have a nice day i'm so nervous to hit this button is there a memory card <laughs>